Welcome to Journey Church Tucson Sermon Podcast. We are an evangelical free church seeking to honor God by making disciples that learn about, love like, and live like Jesus. My name is Micah Cote. I'm one of the elders here, and it's always a privilege to, uh, to speak and uh, just a real honor. I was all excited to teach the kids today because our fathers are teaching the kids, and I was all excited, and Jim and Tyler were like, no, Micah. Stay away from the children. <laughs> the parents can tolerate, you know, they're more mature to tolerate a little bit of heresy, but stay away from the children. <laughs> so they're a loss. Um, <clears throat> but I'm excited to be here. As um, I, w- I would like you to start by surveying uh, the Bible, starting from uh, Genesis to Revelation. And think about uh, experiences or times when people had an interaction with God. Whether it was in the Old Testament and it was a theophany or it was the, the burning bush or it was the person of Jesus or in the book of Revelation we see Jesus uh, glorified and people responding to him. Think about different responses. Think about how you respond to, uh, to an experience with the Lord. Um, some people are afraid. Some people bow down. Some people lift up pro- uh, palm branches some people confess sin. One lady touched the hem of Jesus' garment. But from all of these responses, one of them stands out, and it's just not my opinion that it stands out. It's from Jesus' opinion that it stands out. And we have this picture of Jesus in, this, uh, in this, someone's house, and uh, you know he's talking, and people are learning from him, and then all of a sudden this woman comes in, and people are like, she wasn't invited. And... Um, And she's broken, and she starts crying, and she gets this very expensive jar of oil, breaks it open, starts washing washing Jesus' feet. She pours the oil on his head. She's, She's crying, and she starts drying his feet with her hair. And it's just this this wild story. People are like, what is going on here? And um Jesus, in response to that, he said, um, Truly I tell you, wherever the gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. So this is a time where women were were really not considered to be all that human. Um, and, And furthermore, if we, how we interpret it from the passage in Luke, this woman could have been a prostitute. And so we have this, this wild picture of this woman broken, worshiping Jesus. People are like, she's a prostitute. Jesus obviously knows that. And he says, listen, people, I want you, what this woman is doing right now, I want you to take note. I want you to learn from her. Learn what she's doing. And likewise today, the, the heroine of our story is a prostitute. Today's title is Lessons from a Pagan Prostitute, Civil Disobedience, Faith, and Redemption. The Bible uh, wants us to know that she's a prostitute. I'm not just saying that for a rhetorical flourish or to be, um, you know, to stand out. Hey, 
The Bible wants us to know she's a prostitute, meaning the Holy Spirit, who was moving in the authors of the New Testament, wanted us to know she was a prostitute because almost every time we read her name in the Bible, she's not just referred to as Rahab, she's referred to as Rahab the prostitute or Rahab the, pro, uh, the harlot. And it's fitting uh, that we're looking at her today because we live in a completely sexually saturated culture. We know that prostitution and sexual sin has been around since uh, the fall of man. Um, we know that there was many uh, places, uh, neighbors of people, of the children of Israel, people, people groups around them that um, had their temples to gods. They had temple prostitutes. They had both female prostitutes and male prostitutes. And uh, I, I, we know that. Um, I know that in the 1780s, when William Wilberforce was a young man, that 25% of unmarried women in London were prostitutes. The average age was 16, and they even have brothels with 14-year-old women, or women, children, 14-year-old children. That didn't sit well with William Wilberforce. So with all that said, um, I'd say that um, sexual sin slash prostitution is more prominent today than it ever has been in world history. Consider this. Uh, today, a young boy could view more sexual images in a single day in front of a computer than King Solomon could have in his entire life. King Solomon had 700 wives and 300 concubines. That's in the last 30 years with the internet. Um, and then I think maybe... Uh, maybe in the last five years, with more platforms becoming available, we have something called digital prostitution. And it's, um, it's genius from a marketing scheme and how to make money, but um, it allows, it's a, it's a platform for mostly women uh, to sell themselves to men without having to be physically touched, and they can do it from the comfort of their home, and they can make a lot of money. This is within the last uh, 10 or 5 to 10 years of world history has never been, something like this has never existed. So when I, I mention that, because when we talk about prostitution and sexual sin, it's not something out there like, hey, I don't, like, it's something, it's in here. It affects all of us. Sadly, it's something that um, many of us will face. Many of us are currently dealing with that. And we will likely deal with it in the future. Rahab was a prostitute. And as such, she was uh, plagued with a certain amount of shame and guilt and even self-loathing, depression. There is an emptiness, a brokenness, a loneliness, a darkness that accompanied her. Paul said, because sexual sin is just not something that we do to others, but it affects our own body. He says, flee sexual immorality in 1 Corinthians, and all other sins that a person commits are outside the body, but whoever commits uh, sexual sin sins against their own body. So it's this, it's this very uh, toxic sin that affects us all. But it's from this lowly place, this broken place, of a pagan prostitute who lived about 1,600 years ago that we find a work, listen, 
that we find a work and a faith that we today should not only emulate, but I say that we must emulate. She was a prostitute. She's our hero. She's our example today. And so we have to ask, why and how is that? So to do that, you turn to the book of Joshua. It's the sixth book in your Bible. If you want to turn there, we're in chapter 2. Uh, let, me, let, me, uh, let me pray, and uh, we'll get started into it. Lord, thank you for this time together. Thank you for your great love. Thank you that you have redeemed us, that you're able to redeem us, that nothing is too great for you. Uh, keep us from the, the, the sin of coming here on Sunday morning just because it's a thing to do. But may we learn from you and hear your voice. Lord, I, I pray that we would just take a minute right now that you would pray for yourself, that you would hear God's voice. I pray, uh, I ask you uh, to also take a minute and, and uh, pray for me that I would be a, a good conduit and a good messenger of what God has for us today. Lord, we, we love you and we give you thanks. In your name we pray, amen. Amen. I was, I was asked to teach Joshua chapter 2 and uh, the whole chapter. And I kind of felt like a mosquito at a nude beach. I just did not know where to begin. <laughs> so I broke up the text in, into, into three different categories. Here it is, verses 1 through 7, what Rahab did. Verses 8 through 11, why Rahab did it. And verses 12 through 24, who it impacted. So what she did, why she did it, and who it impacted. Let's, let's get started. Now Joshua, the son of Nun, sent out two men from Acacia Grove to spy secretly, saying, Go view the land, especially Jericho. So they went and came to the house of a harlot named Rahab and lodged there. And it was told the king of Jericho, saying, Behold, men have come here tonight from the children of Israel to search out the country. So the king of Jericho sent to Rahab, saying, Bring out the, the men who have come to you who have entered into your house, for they have come to search out all of the country. Then the woman took the two men and hid them. So she said, Yes, the men uh, came to me, but I did not know where they, came, where they came from. And it happened as the gate was being shut, when it was dark, that the men went out. Where the men went, I do not know. Pursue them quickly, for you may overtake them. But she had brought them up to the roof, of the, to the roof and hidden them with the stalks of flax which she had laid in order on the roof. Then the men pursued them by the road to the Jordan, to the fords, and as soon as those who pursued them had gone out, they shut the gate. Pretty dramatic story, isn't it? This is like high-stakes, high Mission Impossible stuff. God has promised uh, the children of Israel that they're going, going to... Um, overtake this land. They don't know how. Joshua, he didn't tell Joshua, this is how I'm going to do it. He just says, be strong, be of good courage. Uh, and so Joshua sends out these two spies. We don't know their names. Jewish tradition says that they might have been uh, Caleb and the high priest Eliezer. And in the first verse, they go uh, and they find their way to this uh, harlot's house. 
Why would they do that? Uh, good question. The Bible doesn't tell us why they did that, but we can only imagine that they probably did that because they wanted to have a low profile and go somewhere that, you know, hey, we're two spies. I'm not going to be knocking on the door of the king and going to a high official's house and, you know, we're going to go to uh, probably maybe a shady spot, but somewhere low and just kind of seek out the land. And so they went to uh, this prostitute's house. She was, uh, is an innkeeper, so it was a kind of maybe a place to stay. But these are men who have high integrity. Joshua didn't, didn't send two, like, young little rascals. Hey, go check out the land for me. And they're like, let's go to a prostitute's house. Um, these are men who, with, with extreme integrity. But they find themselves at a prostitute's house. Um, somehow the, the plan is foiled. And, um, you know, the king or the king's officials knock on our door. Hey, you have two guys here who are, who are coming here to seek out the land. They, they're going to take us over. Bring them, out, bring them on out. And so she's like forced, she's like in this predicament, like, whoa. So now she's in this Mission Impossible scheme, and, and now her life depends on it because she would surely be killed depending on how she reacted and how she didn't react. And at the end of, at the, end of the story, we know that she, she, she hides the guys, and she's like, hey, I, yeah, two guys came. I don't know who they were. Uh, maybe you can catch them. They're probably on their way out. Uh, you know, the gate already shut. Uh, go find them. So she tells a lie. And this is what we call civil disobedience. So we, we need to ask, well, was it justified? Was telling a lie justified? Was this justified? I think the Bible is clear uh, that it was. But before we do that, let's look at a few examples of civil disobedience in the Bible. Uh, in Exodus chapter 1, the Hebrew midwives. So Pharaoh was like, hey, we're going to uh, kill all the, all the boys that are being born. So, and, you know, you need to do that. And they were like, mm, no, we're going to disobey that order. Thankfully, they did that. Uh, Mordecai, in the book of Esther, King Xerxes honored Haman, ordering everyone to bow down to him, and Mordecai said, no, I'm, I'm not going to do that either. Esther, chapter 4, um, she went in to see the king, and though it was unlawful, and she said, even though it's against the law, she said, if I, I'm going to do this, and if I die, then I die. Civil disobedience. Daniel's friends they wouldn't bow down. They paid no attention to Nebuchadnezzar. Daniel chapter 6, Daniel continued to pray to God even though it was against the rule of King Darius. The apostles in chapter 4, 5, and 16, uh, their, their preaching went against the community guidelines of the people in charge there. You're not supposed to teach. You're not supposed to preach. And they're like, eh, I'm sorry, but we're going to teach. We're going to preach because God has called us to something higher than what you have laid upon us. The zeitgeist of the time, or you, or you can say the, the spirit of the age, will always manifest itself in political power. Whether it be from the Tower of Babel to the Babylonians to the Persians to the Romans to the United States of America, the zeitgeist of the time, the spirit of the age, will always, always manifest itself through political power. <clears throat> For us, civil disobedience is relatively new as Americans. Because why? Because America is an amazing nation. It's, it's, it's a, the one, as far as I know, I'm not a historian, uh, as far as I know, it's the only country in the world who was, that was uh, based upon the Judeo-Christian ethic. And within 200 years, we became an absolute powerhouse. We have 
a lot of bad things that we've done too, but overall speaking, we, the founders of our nation, you can't, you can't separate Christianity from the United States of America because we are based solidly on Judeo-Christian ethic. That's why they're on the bells in D.C. There's verses of Deuteronomy. That's why there's Ten Commandments on, on um, a lot of places. That's why you put your hand on the Bible when you're sworn in. So we have been blessed with that, with that right? We've been blessed as a people among other countries, let's say Russia or a communist country, uh, who don't have that. So civil disobedience to a lot of people isn't, um, isn't new, but to us as a people, as Americans, it probably is new because of our history as a nation. <clears throat> because of that, we are, um, so I think we live in a post-Christian world. So I've heard people say for years and years, even since I was a kid, hey, we're, we're going the wrong direction. This is, you know, we're going the wrong direction. Hey, we're going the wrong direction. I'm like, 45 years old. It's like, are we, are we just going to keep on saying that? Yeah, we've been going the wrong direction for numerous years now. So much so that I personally think we live in a post-Christian world. We live in a post-Christian America. And we're reaping the fruit of that separation from God, from his laws, and from his will. And look at the culture. That, look at the culture and look at the, 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 uh, the church. Yesterday, there was a drag show at Tucson High School. It's the second drag show that Tucson High put on for their students. I can talk more about that, but I won't. One of the highest positions in the United States, Katanji Jackson, a Supreme Court Justice. She was asked to, be, you know, she was being talked to and grilled before she was appointed to become a Supreme Court judge. She's one of nine, so it's a pretty high position in the U.S. government. They asked her, hey, you, what, what's a woman? Um, she uh, couldn't answer it. She said she's not a biologist. I can't answer it. I don't know what a woman is. I do not know what a woman is. I'm not a biologist. So my little girl, kindergarten girl, could tell me what a woman is. Well, it's not a gotcha question. Hey, we got her. It's just a question. Can you define what a woman is? She did not do it. She could have done it. She, why did she not do it? Because you dare not speak against the zeitgeist. You do not speak against the spirit of the age. And she knew that, and she did not speak against the spirit of the age. President Biden, he's a Catholic. He invoked his, uh, his Catholic faith not too long ago. Very recently, he, he said the word sin. I'm like, oh, man, that's great. No one says sin. It's too, too negative. It's, it's not popular. No one says sin. He said sin. Great. What is sin? What, 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 what was sinful that he was talking about? Um, not, well, uh, Florida uh, Board of, uh, the medical board in Florida said, hey, we're going to not, uh, we're going to put a ban on um, uh, cross-sex hormones and puberty blockers. And we're not going to put a ban on it for everybody, but we're just going to put a ban on it for children because we, we think it's wrong to mutilate children's bodies and to do this. And President Biden, Biden said, it wasn't sinful, you know, he said it was, it was, quote, near sinful that the Florida Board of, of um, Medics said, we're going to put a stop to this for children. Still do it if you're an adult, but for children, we're going to stop this. Our president said that's near sinful. <clears throat> Please, uh, church, please understand this. What I just said 
has absolutely nothing to do with politics. You understand that? It has nothing to do with politics. It is not political. It has everything to do with, it's, it's spiritual, completely spiritual. It's completely spiritual. It is not political. I hope we, I hope we understand that. Paul said in Ephesians, uh, he says, our struggle is not against flesh and blood, it's not against rulers, um, but it is against rulers, against authorities, against the powers of this dark world and against the spiritual forces of evil in the, hev- in the heavenly realms, a.k.a., what do we call that? The spirit of the age or the zeitgeist. That's where, that's where our battle is. And what I just mentioned, I want to emphasize again, is not political but it is very spiritual. Much of what we are witnessing in our culture today or our our politics today is between good and evil, light and dark, and truth and lies. Rod Draher is an author that I like. He said this, you have to live in a world of lies, right? We have to live in a world of lies, but it's your choice as to whether the world lives in you. Don't let it live in you. A hero of, uh, Ale- of Rod Draher is Alexander Solzhenitsyn. He's a famous Russian dissident, lived under communism, became a Christian. His battle cry was this, let their rule hold, not through me. If their, if their rule is going to hold, it's not going to be through me. He believed at the core of the crisis that created and sustained communism was not political but spiritual. If you don't believe that, please look up uh, what militant atheism is. Militant atheism. One definition of totalitarianism is the politicization of everything. What happens when past, uh, What happens to pastors and churches when? It, what happens to pastors or churches when everything is deemed political? And they don't want to be political because we don't want to be we don't want to be political. What happens to that church or that pastor? Well, then they say nothing because everything's political. I don't want to be a political pastor. Nothing will be said because of fear. Rosa Parks said this: "You must never be fearful about what you are doing when it is right. Sit in the back of the bus because you have black skin. Mm, no, not going to do that." Francis Schaeffer, a popular uh, theologian in in the 70s, um, said, if there is no final place for civil disobedience, then the government has been made autonomous, and as such, it has been put in the place of the living God. I was going to quote Dietrich Bonhoeffer, but then I just thought this would be a better better, uh, question to ask. How you guys all know Dietrich Bonhoeffer is kind of a uh, really famous evangelicals and and Catholics. We all like, man, he's a great guy. He's a pastor and a theologian, right? You know what he was famous for? He was part of um, a major player in a plot to murder the highest elected politician in Germany. How many how many of us at the time would have been like, yes, Dietrich? I support you in a murder plot to assassinate Adolf Hitler. Statistically speaking, I don't think any of us would have, just by the numbers. Maybe in a size this 
size this big, maybe one or two people, I don't know. But statistically speaking, it's not, not good. We would not have probably supported him. And yet now, looking back on history, we're like, oh man, he's great. <clears throat> the question is this, if Rahab did this, why can't we? If Rahab did this, why can't we? If we, the church, are filled with the Spirit of God, that's the promise that God gives us. He gives us His Spirit. It says that we actually have the mind of Christ. If we can't distinguish between those things that are actually political and those things that are spiritual, we as a church and a country are going to suffer some serious consequences. And maybe we should pray for a pagan prostitute to rise up and to call a spade a spade. Verses 8 through 11. This is why she did it. Let's continue. Verse 8. Now before they lay down, uh, the men that she hid up there, before they lay down, she came up to the roof and said to them, I know that the Lord has given you the land, that the terror of you has fallen on us, and that all the inhabitants... Um, of the land are faint-hearted because of you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea for you when you came out of Egypt, and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were on the other side of the Jordan, Sihon and Og, whom you utterly destroyed. And as soon as we heard these things, our hearts melted, neither did there remain any more courage in anyone because of you. For the Lord your God, he is God in heaven above and on earth beneath. So the news of God spreads uh, throughout the uh, surrounding nations. And Rahab knows that. She quoted, uh, she makes mentions to the, the parting of the Red Sea, which is about 40 years ago. And then she mentions these two other kings that was just recent in the last couple I don't know, it was definitely within the last year. So she's quoting things that happened 40 years ago to things that happened within the year. And she's like, we've all seen it. She says, we, us, all of us have seen what God has done. We've seen it and we've become faint-hearted. There's no life in us anymore. Uh, so Rahab, along with everybody else, heard the works of God um, around the world. Uh, uh, but she believed them. And not only, she, not only did she believe them, but like she, you know, intellectually assented to it. But she trusted in the one who worked them, meaning her, her belief led to action, and her action led to risk. Because what was she risking? Well, she was risking her life because she, like I said, she almost certainly would have been put to death if she was found out for what she did. The point is this. Um, someone told me this a while ago, and I've uh, tried to live by it ever since, but anytime you place faith in God, you risk something. Anytime you place faith in God, you risk something. So instead of asking someone, hey, how's you doing? How, how you doing today? How's your faith doing? Oh, I'm doing good. I'm doing good. Uh, maybe, try this maybe, ask them, how's your faith doing? Have you, what, what are you risking for God? What have you risked for God lately? That's a whole different paradigm shift in my mind. <clears throat> um, I might pick up my family and move to another state to maybe get involved in, in full-time ministry. I don't know if the God's calling me to that. That's a huge risk, and I'm fearful. 
But if someone was to ask me, what am I risking, I would say, man, right now, I, me and my wife have been praying for years now that God would do something, and it might involve us moving and picking up and going somewhere completely new. I don't know what it is, but it's a risk. Am I willing to risk it? Ask me in a year from now and see what happens. Uh, you might be in college and be like, hey, I want to start a Bible study. You're risking something. You're risking your popularity. You're risking uh, people who might not even come to, your, come to your Bible study. You're risking something. I had a student in high school once do a Bible study, and he risked something. No matter how it turned out, it's good because his faith is in God, and he made a risk. Church, are, uh, uh, how is our faith doing? Is it just a comfortable faith? Yeah, I'm, I'm or is it a faith that extracts something from us where, we're, where we are risking something? Rahab placed faith in God. That faith led to um, action in God. And that action led to risk. In answering the question, why did Rahab commit civil disobedience? First answer is this, because she recognized the Lord as being the one true God in heaven and earth. Amen? She recognized that. Which begs the question, why didn't the other people of the city recognize that? Because they did. They did recognize that. Why didn't they repent? Why didn't they come underneath and seek after God? But she did. The second answer is this, because judgment was coming. I can't read her motives, but I'm fairly certain she was afraid she was going to be wiped out because she recognized God's kingdom and his rule was coming and that Jericho was going down and I'm out of here. Fear is a pretty good motivator. Amen? There's no one in this room who, th who thinks, oh, I'm a Christian because I have the best humble motives and I have no fear. No, I think if we're honest, a, a lot of us recognize our sin and recognize that judgment's coming, so we want to be covered with the blood of Christ. Amen? Because judgment is coming. Jericho was going to be wiped out. She recognized that your God, all these other gods out here are nothing compared to your God. He's the true God of heaven and earth. I'm going to submit myself underneath him. And uh, Jericho, I don't have trust in Jericho. I don't have trust in their kings. I don't have trust in their armies. I don't have trust in my own philosophy on what's right and wrong. I put my trust in the Lord. Likewise, we, can, we, can, we have a decision to make if we're going to trust God ultimately with our lives or we're going to trust our government or fill in the blank, whatever else. <clears throat> last chunk of verses, uh, verses 12 through 24, this is who it impacted. Now, therefore, I, I beg you, swear to me uh, by the Lord, since I have shown you this kindness, that you will also show kindness to my father's house and give me a true token. And spare my father, my mother, my brothers, my sisters, and all that they have, and deliver our lives from death. So the men answered her, the two spies, uh, our lives for yours. If none, of, uh, if none of you tell this business of ours, and it shall be when the Lord has given us the land, that we will deal kindly and truly with you. Again, the two spies have, um, they're not like, hey, when we do this great thing, he says, when the Lord gives us this land. So they, they have this faith that God is going to do this work. They still don't know how it's going to happen. But when the Lord has given us the land, that we will deal kindly and truly with you. Verse 15, then she let them down by a rope through the window, for her house was on the city wall. I never understood how you could live in a city wall until I lived in England. And I 
went to school inside a city wall. It's pretty cool. My mom was there. The city of York, England is surrounded by a wall, old school castle. There's five entrances all the way around it. They call them bars. And our school was on one of the bars, and that's where we had church at. It was actually in the wall. I, whenever I read these verses before that, I said, how do you have a house in the wall? But people had houses in the walls, and uh, that's where her home was. Um, sorry, where, where did I go? Um, she, d- she dwelt on the city wall. She uh, dwelt on the wall. Verse 16, and she said to them, uh, get to the mountain, lest the pursuers meet you. Hide there three days until the pursuers have returned. Afterward, you may go your way. So Rahab just wasn't content to save herself. Hey, uh, she, she brought in everybody which is a good picture for us, amen? Hey, Lord Jesus, save my, my mom, save my father, save my brothers, save my sister, save all, all um, of their children as well, my nieces and my nephews, pack everyone into the house because judgment's coming and everyone who is in this house is going to be saved. She was not content to just save herself. Verse 17, so the men said to her, we will be blameless of this oath of yours which you have made us swear. Unless when we come into the land, you uh, bind this line of scarlet cord in the window through which you let us down. And unless you bring your father, your mother, your brothers, and all your father's household to your home. So it shall be that whoever goes outside the doors of your house into the street, his blood shall be on his own head. And we will be guiltless. And whoever is with you in the house, his blood shall be on your head. I'm sorry, on our head if a hand is laid on him. And if you tell this business of ours, then we will be free from the oath which you made us swear. Then she said, according to your words, so be it. And she sent them away, and they departed. And she bound the scarlet cord in the window. They departed and went to the mountain. They stayed there three days until the pursuers returned. The pursuers sought them all along the way, but did not find them. So the two men returned, descended from the mountain, and crossed over. And they came to Joshua, the son of Nun, and told him all that they had, all that had befallen them. Verse 24, and they said to Joshua, truly the Lord has delivered all of the land into our, hand, into our hands, for indeed all of the inhabitants of the country are faint-hearted because of us. So, what an amazing story. Um, and in, in these verses, again, because we're short on time, but there, there's so much uh, in these verses. Um, this event is a picture of the Passover that happened uh, years before. And the Passover was, was when God's judgment came upon um, uh, the Israelites and uh, the Egyptians. And God was going to kill every firstborn, and he did. And he said, get a lamb, sacrifice the lamb, get the blood of the lamb, and put it on the doorpost. And when I come over and I pass over the land upon the Israelites and the Egyptians, whose ever house is covered with the blood, will be saved. Rahab didn't have a lamb, but she had a blood-colored rope, which was a sign to God to pass over her house, which was on the wall, which is very interesting, which we'll find out in a couple more chapters. Um, and then, so this, the Passover, as well as this picture, is a, t- a type of foreshadowing of Jesus. That he was the lamb sacrificed 
to bear the sins of uh, not just the children of Israel or a certain elect amount of people, but to, to bear the sins of all people of all time. Judgment's coming. And if you have the blood of Christ on you, if, re, if you have repented and trusted him as your Savior and your, as your Lord, that, that, that judgment is going to pass over you. And th- these, these are two pictures of uh, what Christ has done for, for us. Amen? If you haven't done that, I beg you that you would do that now, that you would pray in your heart and say, God, my Jericho is, been, is going to be judged. So please, uh, I accept the blood of Jesus and I confess my sin and I want to be made right. I pray that you would do that now. The story doesn't end here for Rahab. Uh, she was something so much bigger than what she would have ever thought possible. Uh, turns out uh, she ended up marrying someone named uh, Solomon. And she, so she made her, so she was ultimately saved, all, everybody in her household, but she uh, started living, she made the, uh, the children of Israel, that was who she lived with now. She ended up marrying a man named Solomon and uh, making her home with the Jewish people. She was redeemed, she was transformed, and she was made new. Amen. This is her redemption and her legacy. Matthew chapter 1 is giving us the genealogy of Jesus. It says in verse 5 that Salmon begot Boaz by Rahab. So they had a child named Boaz. And Boaz begot Obed by Ruth. And Obed begot Jesse. So check this out. The reformed and changed prostitute Rahab became the great, great, great grandmother to King David. Yeah? How cool is that? Why did we read this in Matthew? Why did God in, includes a prostitute in Jesus' genealogy? Why? He wants to invite you in. Amen? He wants to invite you in to his genealogy. And it doesn't matter your past. Look at uh, Hebrews 11.30 from the verses we read today. The he- uh, um, Hebrews 11 is the hall of faith. It's the hall of fame. It's like if you get your name in the book of Hebrews, you are someone really important. Verse 30, by, walls, uh, by faith the walls of Jericho fell down after they were encircled for seven days. By faith the harlot Rahab did not perish with those who uh, did not believe when she received the spies with peace. She has this lasting legacy in the New Testament. Furthermore, and this is, uh, wrap it up here, the book of James. James is telling us, what is, it, what is like salvation by faith through grace look like? And where does works put in, where, how, does, how does that work out with works and faith? And he says this, he gives an example, so I'll read a few verses. Some of you will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without your works. And I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that there is one God, you do well. Even the demons believe and they tremble. But do you want to know, O foolish man, that faith without works is dead? And then he mentions Abraham. Abraham, if you were a Jewish child back in the day, you would have a, a little plastic figurine of Abraham. That's how popular he was. He was the father of the Jewish people. Everyone wanted to be like him. He, he, was, he was it. He says, was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered Isaac his son on the altar? Do you see that faith was working together with his works, and by works, faith was made perfect. 
And the scripture was fulfilled, which says Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness, and he was called the friend of God. You see then that a man is justified by works and not by faith only. And then he does this amazing thing. Verse 25, likewise, was not Rahab the harlot also justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out another way? For as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead also. Here's what I got from that. James is saying, here's how faith and, and, and works works together. And then he gives us a picture of Abraham, the icon of, of all spiritual, uh, of all uh, Israelis, the children of, of um, Jacob. Uh, he, he gives us this Abraham. And he could have given us a hundred other people that followed in Abraham's steps, but then he chose who? Rahab, a prostitute, is an example of what it looks like to place faith in God and works in God. Isn't that amazing? You know how many people he could have slid in, verse 25, and he didn't slide in there? He slid in Rahab? That's something very, very special. And it points to this, that the cross is the great equalizer. Amen? It humbles princes and it lifts up prostitutes. And we are all level at the foot of the cross. Amen? Man, we need to get this, church. We need to get this. I need to get this. Bottom line is this. Sometimes civil dis disobedience is faith in God. And a true faith in God will always bring about redemption. I was not a prostitute, but I lived a, lot, I lived a life of uh, um, my own life that fulfilled me. And God has redeemed me. That's what God is in the business of doing, of redeeming us. And my hope and my prayer is that we would draw closer to him this morning and surrender to his goodness. Amen? Let me pray for us. Lord, thank you for um, your great love for us, that even in your judgment you have mercy. Take the words of... Uh, of uh, the words we looked at today in Joshua and minister them to our hearts. Let us see them with fresh eyes and um, go before us in the rest of this week. May we be a light to our neighbors and to each other. May we love as you have loved us. Lord, we uh, worship you and we praise you in the name of Jesus. Amen. Thank you for listening to Journey Church Tucson Sermon Podcast. We'd love to have you join us in person on Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. You can find out more about us at journeyefc.org.